Podcast. My name is Brendan, and it's just me today, me and a guest, I should say. Uh, joining me for this uh, special bonus episode of RoyCast is a filmmaker and film production professor in Chicago, a friend of the show, a close friend, geographically, uh, approx- approximation-wise. Uh, he's a resident expert on Judaism, self-described, he says, and a second favorite roommate who is not a cat, which is which is false. I cherish my, my non-cat roommates uh, equally, although the, the cat does does come in a bit higher. It's, uh, it's Alex Sherman. Hey, Alex, thanks for doing this. Hey, happy to be here, live from our dining room. Our dining room, yes. We are trying a new recording setup here, um, contra the usual sort of like tin can Zoom setup. We're both sitting in the same room. We've got a, a mixer between us. Uh, you know, for those who may not know, there's, there's I guess there's just some bonuses for the real uh, 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 the real the real heads, the real fans of the show. Uh, we do, we li- occupy a kind of uh, podcast studio here at, uh, at our house where uh, with the great film podcast the gauntlet gets recorded out in our garage behind the house so we're, we're borrowing our, our our close friends uh recording equipment here and uh hopefully some of their uh engineering prowess as well so maybe if this comes through crystal clear we'll we'll do some some tweaking in the old uh the old roycast studios um but we are here uh for a bonus episode uh we'll introduce that topic in uh, just a moment but uh i guess at the top of the episode we should actually talk succession because uh since the last time there was an episode of this podcast since the last time gabby and i got together and gabby couldn't join us uh for this episode she sends her her best wishes uh but we uh, we have some new succession news we got a, a a trailer drop for for season four and we got a premiere date so march 26th we're gonna see season four of succession as we had discussed previously uh zombie survival phenomenon the last of us is gonna wrap up uh, i think march 12th there'll be a two-week hiatus and then succession takes back over its rightful place in that kind of pole position sunday nights uh on hbo as the the water cooler show did you get a chance to look at the trailer alex i did yeah i uh, i don't have it fresh but um it looks like a lot of fun you know, it's uh, it's 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 another one of those. We we had some fun talking about the season three tagline that was like "Make your move." You know, it's like right. these the two sides are going to war. It looks like the kids are united against Logan, who's got his new allies, Tom and Greg. You know, not exactly the you know Miami Heat. I don't know. He's uh, uh, but he's he's got other allies. We're gonna see the return of Justin Kirk, his presidential candidate, Jared Menken, and uh, we've got some other announcements of folks that we can expect to see back. Um, there was a press release, HBO release, that had some cast announcements there. So I think previously announced as returning had been Alexander Skarsgård, Cherry Jones, Hope Davis, Justin Kirk, Stephen Root, who had a small appearance in that uh, sort of Republican convention episode, What It Takes, in season three. Uh, newly announced as returning for the press release, James Cromwell, of course. We got to see, got to see Uncle Ewan back. Harriet Walter, Lady Caroline. Natalie Gold, Rava, one of our favorites. Caitlin Fitzgerald, the return of Tabs, Tabitha. Uh, a great Roycast favorite, Ashley Zuckerman, our our nemesis, Nate Safrelli, who made a, a brief cameo in, in season three. Uh, Larry Pine, Marklin Baker, Pip Torrens, real heads know, 
And uh, then we've got some, some new announcements. Um, a couple of uh, Norwegian Icelandic actors I'm not familiar with, uh, Ili Harbo and Johans Johansson, I guess are going to be playing uh, roles in the um, uh, Alexander Skarsgård's you know, bid to merge with the company. They're assuming they're going to be working Lord. for Gojo in some capacity. It certainly looks like we're going to be spending some time in, in Scandinavia. Johans Johansson is an Icelandic actor. We may know Ili Harbo from uh, the... Uh, the film Thelma from a few years back, um, Norwegian actress. Um, we also have Adam Godley, who folks may recognize from Breaking Bad. He played uh, Elliot, Walt's former business partner. Um, we previously had, I'm blanking on the name of the actress, but we previously had the, had the actress who played uh, Gretchen on the show as well, his wife. So we've got a, another Breaking Bad uh, cameo. And uh, one of my personal favorites that I'm very excited about was just announced, Annabeth Gish is going to be joining the cast for season four. Annabeth Gish, folks may know her from one of the great sort of coming-of-age comedies, Mystic Pizza, uh, a personal favorite of mine, and another great favorite, uh, the AMC series Halt and Catch Fire, which she joined in season three. Uh, she was really wonderful on that show, and you know, who, who knows how big these roles are going to be? I mean, we were very excited last season to see you know, actors like Sanaa Lathan and Linda Eman joining the show. Their roles ended up being a bit circumscribed, a bit functional, you know. Uh, but it's always uh, great to see, you know, actors we love getting a chance to sort of pop in on what increasingly is, you know, as we said, the, the water cooler show that dominates uh, the industry these days. Um, and the teaser in the press release doesn't announce season four as being the final season of the show. Um, you know, many times Jesse Armstrong, his writers, many of the actors have talked about this too. Brian Cox is fond of saying he doesn't think the show should go longer than, than five seasons. He's, uh, he's very, I think, uh, conscious of this sort of like late career victory lap he's getting and doesn't want it to be tarnished by sort of going on too long. Everybody's conscious of that. Uh, so there's always been this conversation about is the show going to run for, for four or for five seasons. Uh, so I think what we're currently expecting is that uh, season four will premiere, and then the way HBO usually does these things is they'll announce a season five pickup shortly after that. Uh, so we'll, then they'll probably announce then that that's going to be the, the final season of the show. you have any theories, Alex, about what's going to happen in, in season four? The new four? season? Yeah. Um, well, uh, just fresh from a rewatch, as you know, um, you know, I think it, was fun as as you know enervating as as it can be is that the right word um <laughs> enervating <laughs> a little bit a little bit tedium some of the business stuff the well no less that than the what i was going to say is the the kind of push and pull between the siblings and and finally uh, at the end of the last season seeing through some sort of reconciliation in in a sick way as as Shiv um, and Roman <laughs> help absolve Kendall of his guilt mm -hmm. um, leading into the three of them teaming up to go against their father um, and and shut down this merger so you know this is kind of it feels like this is what the show has been building to as you know, in the immediate aftermath of the pilot, we're we're kind of expecting the siblings to band together and we see how fractured they are. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, as much as we know, 
the three of them, at least the three central siblings, how incompatible they can be. Yes. Um, let's see what happens when they are now all firmly against their common enemy. It's a great point that, uh, as you point out in that second episode of the show, the, one of the first things we see the siblings having to do is having to form a kind of alliance, a very shaky one that's uh, almost immediately threatened by you know Ken's ego and the uh, the failed takeover bid in season one. Um, but you know it makes me think about the other kind of uh, implicit promise in the show. Obviously, the show's title is Succession, and I think one of the things that promises is that at some point there has to be a, a transfer of power, and you know the inciting incident of the pilot of the whole series is uh, Logan's ailing health. The first scene of the entire series is him stumbling around in the dark, alluding to his senility and his decline. And so I think there's a promise there. We just spoke about Breaking Bad a moment ago. I think that series was similarly premised on eventually we were going to see Walt bite the dust. And eventually in this show, Logan has to go too. And I kind of have this pet theory that's been developing that perhaps the implicit sort of wavering over whether the show should run four or five seasons has to do with how much longer the show continues after Logan dies. You know, do you end this, do you kill off Logan in season four? And does the show end then? Does the world die with Logan as his sort of narcissism would imply? Or, you know, does the show's kind of argument about the nature of power and the solipsism of the powerful men that Logan represents in the real world, does that require Armstrong and his writers to sort of show what comes after them, what these siblings can make do, what they're able to build after their father goes away and in what ways he and his sort of influence sort of lingers with them. I think that's a very interesting creative possibility as much as it is a kind of terrifying one to think about the show without that uh, dynamic of conflict that uh, Brian Cox brings with him, the specific dynamics and history that he has with all these actors, particularly Jeremy Strong by this point, to think about the show without him, uh, that's that's tricky, but I think it's also a challenge that is kind of worth taking on. So that's something I'm going to be interested to be looking for, to see if, if there is some sort of development along the pathway of saying goodbye to Logan, because we know that there won't ever be a real transfer of power as long as that character is alive, right? Sure. Well, I mean, I also think um, uh, there is a third possibility, you know, or even a fourth where we see, you know, <clears throat> the company dissolve into nothing or into something else, um, which is, you know, the stakes right now. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. more immediately curious to see, can there be a show without Royco? Um, because it seems pretty clear that more importantly than the money that all of these children stand to inherit, they are, they seem to be more driven by the power that comes with the company itself um, mm -hmm. and, and or the position that CEO of the company affords. So, um, you know, to see them all finally teaming up in the face of the company being no longer, even though they all probably stand to gain hundreds of millions, um, that to me is a really unique avenue that the show is probably going to focus on in this next season. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if, if Logan does die and there is more show to be had, I imagine it then becomes about the fight between the siblings. You know, the, if there's always this question, it comes up anytime anyone is, is, 
interested in in either becoming either being purchased by Royco or or merging with Royco the question always to Logan is who is going to succeed who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who do I have to worry about and now that the stakes are the the kids being cut out of that process entirely um what is there what is there to succeed yeah I mean that was that was a big part of the season three story was the idea that you know not only was was there not a clear choice among the siblings for who was going to succeed Logan and that was the realization he kind of had after he had his disappointment with Roman and the you know the dick pic falling out and all that um but that there would not be a company for them to take over, you know. Uh, in a, it, it is kind of true in a sense that, you know, the world Logan occupies dies with him because there is really no one like him waiting in the wings. When he leaves, it increasingly seems like the power, the empire that he sort of rules with an iron fist is going to transfer to these sort of algorithmic tech interests who aren't really embodied by one individual, even, you know, a charismatic or compelling one like Alexander Skarsgård isn't really a proper, you know, inheritor or you know an heir to logan uh he's a he's a different kind of animal um and yeah so obviously the machinations over like who takes the throne or who takes the company has always been a very much secondary and much lower interest than just what the siblings make of themselves existentially in a world in which their father does not you know sure have a physical influence uh, upon their lives um and that's what's going to make for for interesting television to see how those actors uh, inhabit that conflict but what we wanted to talk about today to get into our our bonus uh, episode proper um let's stop talking about succession for a minute (laughs) For a minute, because we'll bring it back, because what we are here to talk about today is we're here to talk about the new film, Armageddon Time, uh, which came out in theaters last fall. (laughs) It did come out in theaters, I swear, and then uh, quickly uh, left them and made its way to Video On Demand, where it's now available for people to seek it out. Um, We talked a little bit on our last bonus episode about the sort of tricky environment for quote-unquote movies for adults at the box office these days, and Armageddon Time was certainly part of that story. And we wanted to talk about this movie because a principally because it stars among other actors jeremy strong he's not the lead the cast also includes anne hathaway anthony hopkins um uh, john deal jessica chastain uh newcomers banks repetta and jalen webb as the the child actors in this story that uh, focuses on the uh childhood basically of writer director james gray who we wanted to talk a little bit about as well because he's made several films and this is a big reason that alex is here today is alex and i have spent a lot of time i think much more time than we've spent talking about succession talking about the films of james gray uh, a director who both of us have uh, been interested in independently of each other for a while and uh, his films cover i think similar thematic territory to succession there is a good deal of overlap in some of the themes of family of you know fathers and sons of the idea of inheritance and power and transfers of power between generations these are things that crop up over and over again in his movies um you know in armageddon time has this very odd historical resonance that uh, also echoes in some ways uh the premise of succession where uh, it focuses on this time in uh, gray's childhood where he attended a school uh, at which one of the trustees was Fred Trump. And uh, uh, there, 
the movie includes a scene where we, you know, a couple of scenes with the with Fred Trump as a character, uh, and also his uh, his daughter Marianne Trump, who gives a speech at the school, played by Jessica Chastain. So you have these echoes of these sort of real life magnates who he great crossed paths with when he was a boy at prep school, and uh, you know. So we can recap his biography, but that's going to sort of come into play when we talk about Armageddon time. But we wanted to talk a little bit about who he is and sort of why we're interested in him to start. Uh, so do you want to take a quick stab at that, Alex, as to who James Gray is and why we care about him broadly? Sure. Well, you know, uh, sure. Um, yeah, I got into James Gray in college and... He is I, – the. I'll pull up the article that you posted in the notes for this, um, the piece by uh, Jordan Mincer, um, which is a reporting of, of some onset experiences that he had on Armageddon time. But he kind of contextualizes Gray's career a little bit, and then it's kind of, it's way more elaborated on – in Colin Brinkman's series. Yeah, I should go ahead and acknowledge at the top that a lot of the research that we did for this episode is going to pull from a series uh, that Colin Brinkman, uh, a writer, wrote on his on his blog, the fifteen seventeen to cinema, uh, in which he basically does a very he does a very <laughs> thorough, very in depth. Uh, you know, sort of critical biography of Gray, talking about the making of all his films, uh, including his early shorts. Yeah, so the synopsis would be. Um, he's a filmmaker that, that came up in the late eighties, early nineties coming out of film school at NYU, I believe. Um, and I think it was USC, right? Was it? Yeah. Oh no. Oh, it was. Yeah. He grew up in New York, um, studied in California Ever the fish out of water. Got very um, far away from his parents, which right. which which, uh, which gives some interesting context to Armageddon time. Um, but so he's he's um, making he made a short that that got him at the time uh, the the recognition and funding he needed for his first film, Little Odessa, um, which leads to a career contemporaneous with the other kind of cherished independent filmmakers of that era, uh, namely uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, uh, lumped in with the Coen brothers who had been working for a little bit, Tarantino. Um, They all seem to be benefiting from uh, a new... um, it's sort of the the rebels on the backlot thing. He's like he's kind of of the same generation of these Sundance kids, even though he's right. not really quite one of them. I think Little Odessa was at Sundance, but it premiered uh, at uh, Venice. He's always right. he's always had more of a foot in the sort of European art house circuit, and this is where we get into the, the interesting conversation that like you know among cinephiles, his, his career is sort of fun to talk about now that he's been around for a while. Uh, because he occupies this sort of weird second order status, where you know he's friendly with all these directors that we talked about. Like, you know, he'll he'll often remind people that he's friendly with you know Chris Nolan and Gwen Tarantino right. and Paul Thomas Anderson and, and all these people. But Gray is not as well known as these people. He's like, and he 
makes films that I think, you know, people who watch these films and who love his movies would say, you know, these are not like very, you know, obtuse, obscure art house no. films. He works in popular genres. He frequently cites Francis Ford Coppola. He's, you know, he works in, you know, the crime genre, the gangster genre, yeah. um, classical melodrama. You know, uh, these are movies that you could imagine, you know, your parents, your grandparents watching and, you know, having a good time with. And yet he's never really had a movie that really crossed over and connected with an audience, even in the same way as some of these other filmmakers have, you know. And uh, it, it, it puts him in this strange position where he's somebody who, you know, I was talking about this recently with a friend who remarked that, uh, you know, Gray is somebody who his most recent film stars Anne Hathaway and Anthony Hopkins. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and its premise is, this is some stuff that happened to me. You know, like, by any measure, this guy has won, right? right? And yet, and yet, he hasn't, ever, there is this feeling that he hasn't quite gotten his due. You know, like, the cinephiles who love him feel that way. I think that Gray still has a bit of his chip on his shoulder about it. Uh, what, I mean, what do you think of that? Do you, do you get this impression, you know, from the movies? Does it seem strange to you that he hasn't really ever gotten, like, a wider fan base? Well, I think it's a couple things, uh, and, and certainly things we probably couldn't identify, but... Um, he he came up in a time uh, when the studios were flush, mostly with you know money from Coca Cola and other conglomerates. But there was a lot of money being spent on these smaller films, the kinds of films that are 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 made with way less frequency now, and and probably wouldn't likely be, appear in the movie theater. Um, but different than his contemporaries. Um, he has way more old-fashioned sensibilities, and yes. he's he's way less of a flashy or or sexy filmmaker, um, as, as he would be the first to admit. Especially when you compare him to filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino or um, Wes Anderson, who have a very you know distinct style visually um, or or whatever, but. These are our movies that were aggressively sort of shoving the director's identity in your face compared to to him, who is a filmmaker who, since he made his first movie, has kind of imagined himself as um, more of a studio filmmaker in the sense of the golden age of Hollywood, um, though... Artistically, he's modeling his movies more closely to the new Hollywood filmmakers of the 70s. So you have this weird um, dissonance between his his love for genre, his love for a kind of a, a classic sensibility of drama, and yet he can't help himself but instill his own personal hang-ups, like all of his great contemporaries, but his personal hang-ups are generally, you know, a little bit duller or a little bit sadder or more morose than these other filmmakers. So I think there's something maybe aesthetically less appealing in a conventional sense, um, but otherwise, you know, there's there's way less of an empirical difference he's he's someone who has consistently gathered great teams of collaborators always 
always bringing a top-notch cinematographer, always, since the beginning, managing to rally, uh, you know, teams of A-list stars. He's he's never kind of slumming it yes. on, on the actor front. He's always got uh, some seasoned professional, um, at the very least, in a supporting role. Um, he's a filmmaker who I, when I think about him, I think about, uh, a very old fashioned, uh, sense of craft and, and that's really, uh, what would tie all of his movies together uh, throughout his career. Yeah. I mean, you talk about those other filmmakers like Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino directors who definitely have, you know, a a really easily identifiable signature style. Like I say, Wes Anderson, you can picture a Wes Anderson frame. I say Tarantino, you can picture a Tarantino scene. James Gray, you know, it's, it's, it's not that he doesn't have a style, but you know, it's, it's always very explicitly, you know, like I'm trying to do like a Chimino movie. I'm trying to do like a Visconti movie or, uh, you know, a Rossellini film or something like that. He's always, he always talks this way. I mean, like, and, And Gray is such a great interview. The word has kind of gotten out on this now. So I feel like I feel like there were more people who wrote long form profiles of James Gray uh, this past fall than actually went to see Armageddon Time uh, in a theater. There were so many there were so many interviews with him because he's such a great sort of prolific talker. You could actually see some of them where uh, I read a couple where he was getting agitated with the interviewer, going like, "You aren't even asking me any questions because I know that he's just going to keep talking and giving them <laughs> giving them great quotes." You know, doing his you know he's a great mimic uh he does uh vocal impressions very well including of of harvey weinstein who he has uh, a number of interesting stories about because uh that's that's one of one of the roadblocks that he's run into in his career is he's ha- actually had two films uh sort of sabotaged by harvey weinstein i guess the, the one of the first movies we would want to talk about in his career as we mentioned his debut feature little odessa but it's his second feature the yards which comes i think a full six years after little odessa because you know Gray's sort of real commitment to wanting to make films on his own terms and make films with creative control means that, you know, he sometimes waits quite a while between projects for things to come together. But his second film, uh, The Yards, which, you know, we talked about him working with A-list stars, you know, you're talking about uh, in the supporting cast, he's got James Caan, he's got Faye Dunaway, uh, but he's also got, you know, the young cast that lead this film or, you know, the A-list stars of the next generation who are just get starting out at this point. He's got Mark Wahlberg, Joaquin Phoenix, with whom he would make four films in total, Charlize Theron. Um, and uh, yeah, this was the first of two films he made, which were distributed and kind of mishandled by Harvey Weinstein. In this case, you know, he required a, a new ending to be shot, which I think is actually the only version of the movie that's currently available for sort of video on demand rental. I have the original ending somewhere on a, on a on an old standard definition DVD, which is the only place that's available. Unfortunately, it's not too bad. It's 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 one of these. I don't know. Weinstein had these weird like old Louis B. Mayer kind of like sensibilities where he was like. No, there needs to be a scene at the end where he's testifying in court, and it's very clear that the bad guys are going to go to jail or whatever, uh, which is very silly. But The Yards is about this sort of uh, – it, it is uh, based also in part on Gray's own life because it's about this 
this sort of transit scandal involving these uh, contractors who repaired uh, subway cars uh, and were sort of, you know, running uh, a sort of graft operation on the side, you know, taking and passing bribes, things like that. This is something that actually wrapped up Gray's father in real life. The uh, uh, what wealth he had accumulated in his career was basically wiped out, I think, by the fines he had to pay as a result of the scandal. So the analog for him would be the uh, the James Con character in this movie who offers a job to Mark Wahlberg's young ex-convict. And uh, the thing that really struck me on rewatching this movie was how that theme of inheritance and trying to you know pass on something to your children is really embodied in the Khan character who seems to me to really be the center of the yards you know the main storyline ostensibly is about Wahlberg's character who gets wrapped up in this you know this murder that happens and he has to flee for his life and he spends most of the movie on the run and there's this question is he going to sell out the other characters including Joaquin Phoenix what's going to happen to Charlize Theron who is Khan's daughter in the movie um and uh but it's really about Khan who sort of sets all this in motion by running this graft operation and he kind of you know he wants to give these kids a better life give them a leg up but instead he just kind of watches helplessly as the events that he's set in motion kind of destroy everything that he's uh sort of worked uh to build did you rewatch this film uh, yeah it goes beyond simply the relationship i think between the central figures in mark Wahlberg and and James Kahn, as complicated as that is, and as as much as that dynamic recurs throughout Gray's career, but even in that movie, the relationship between um, Mark Wahlberg and his mother, played by Ellen Bernstein, and um, the relationship he has with his aunt Faye Dunaway, the 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 wife of James Kahn. The thing about James Gray, I think that that. I don't know if it separates him from his contemporaries, but maybe sets him apart from other filmmakers or likens him to some of his his idols, is his um, interest in kind of like ethnographic details mm-hmm. in in the the little things that that either uh, establish the verisimilitude through these these details, these little knickknacks or objects or or anything he he draws from his memory or the collective memory of the time um, that are always more subtle than anything right up front or anything tied to the plot. And in this movie, or what struck me revisiting this movie recently, was how it seems like all of the, the characters of this younger generation are... are in an operatic sense, paying for the sins of of the earlier generation of right. their parents, right? Um, and and I think that's certainly something that recurs throughout the the movies in his career, and is certainly a present theme in Succession or part of it. I think probably more central than what are the what are the tangible things we inherit from from our parents. It's what is what are the aspects of our identity that we inherit or what are the ways in which you know we become our parents willingly or unwillingly and and how does that reflect on our choices i think you know that's obviously so much of 
the character work in in succession seeing how they how the children react in certain ways that they think their father would want them to or they think that their father would and and either that blowing up in their face because he doesn't want that from them uh, or them getting it wrong yeah it's that there's that poignance of like trying to create a better life for your kids and then how sort of hubristic that is or what kind of damage you can uh, you can uh, exert on the world in trying to give certain people you know a leg up uh, I, I always think about and you know in, in tandem with this movie and with Gray's movies you know the the figure of you know Robert Moses the New York City planner kind of looms large over it in fact um, there's a quote from Brinkman here uh, well, well, it's Gray talking, but he says, we talked about Robert Moses a lot while preparing the movie in terms of production design, trying to capture a New York that doesn't exist anymore and that at the time was on its way out. Uh, the clash between an Archie Bunker-type New York and a New York of small-time rich guys. But I, thinking about Robert Moses and the way that he sort of constructed a city that was, you know, reliant on cars, reliant on highway infrastructure, you know, to make life ostensibly more convenient for a certain class of person, right, while also making life more uh, difficult and more hostile for people who relied on things like subway infrastructure, etc., uh, I think is a great sort of, like, macro example of this, and it's something that you can look at in terms of, you know, succession and all other kinds of, like, real-life examples. You know, in trying to make the world better for certain people, you also keep other people out. That's a huge part of Armageddon time. Yeah, I mean, the micro of that is, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but um, in Armageddon time, uh, the scene when the Jeremy Strong character, the father, uh, uh, finds out that his son has been kicked out of public school for smoking a joint in the bathroom, mm -hmm. and and he he physically assaults him. He he hits him, um, and it's it's one of the 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 more brutal scenes in the film. And then in an interview uh, between the one that that I recommended to you between Gray and Matt Reeves. Matt Reeves, the director of recent films like The Batman, who was, uh, I believe, Gray's classmate at USC. They're very close yeah. friends. And when yeah. he wrote The Yards he with him. He wrote The him, Yards with him, too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, but so, and and in the interview, Reeves talks about growing up with him and knowing his father in particular um, and, and asks him about that moment. And Gray, the way that Gray frames it is of it's an act of desperation or it's an act of of ignorance it's what his father is doing is is the only thing he knows how to do because he yes. doesn't know what else to do um and in his mind in some way he's from his perspective trying to help he's trying to do the right thing by obviously doing the absolute wrong thing in another way i think in the same interview maybe another one he talks about um, I mean, it's what the entire film is about, I think. Um, he talks about the way in which they were raised or, or their lack of rearing. Uh, it was so hands-off, meaning they were, you know, they were allowed to be autonomous. Him to and some his degree. brother, you mean. Him and his brother and him and his friends running around at all hours, you know, riding the subway on their own because their parents were, were too busy focusing on keeping the house um, and making ends meet. And so they would say, go out, take the subway, do your own thing. Um, 
And so again, the way Gray is able to frame that in interviews, in retrospect, acknowledging that that for as much uh, whatever trauma or or uh, whatever that may have caused them, this the brothers. Um, it was there in a place of caring. It was there in a place of the parents doing whatever they could. Yeah, and I think that idea of sort of like misapplied care, misapplied love, there's a line in succession too, right? And they remember the uh, the season two finale where he tell where uh, Kendall says, uh, talking about Logan, he does love me, it's just a wrong sort of love yeah. expression, right? That's a big theme in, 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 in the show and in Grey, and in particular in his next movie, We Own the Night, which I think was a full seven years after yeah. uh, The Yards, another long wait. Uh, and basically what he was waiting for at that time, I think, was for the actors he wanted to use, Wahlberg and Phoenix, to actually become movie stars, which they did in the interim uh, with Walk the Line and with Wahlberg. I think it was, what was it with Wahlberg? It films like The Italian Job, maybe. Yeah. But he became a viable presence. Both of them did because he wanted to cast them as brothers in this uh, story about um, a family of police officers basically their father is played by Robert Duvall is a police officer Wahlberg is a police officer but Phoenix is sort of the black sheep son of the family who goes to become a, a club manager a nightclub manager uh, in New York in the 1980s and so he's sort of caught between his family that he has at the club uh, which is uh, run by this sort of like Russian Jewish immigrant family uh, and his his you know his biological family the police uh, which is much colder and demands this kind of you know institutional loyalty that uh, he doesn't like and you and I know when you you talk about gray in class you often talk about the opening scene of this movie do you want to talk about that a little bit and what that sure uh, yeah it? I mean we we watched the entire opening sequence the first 15 minutes um, in in most of my foundations in all of my foundations classes um, it, because it's such a great tool for education it's so um, formally specific um, and it's really uh, kind of an active thing to break down the way in which um, the way in which the characters and the relationships between all of them uh, are framed. Not, no, not only in the narrative, I mean, it's a really kind of economic uh, script structurally, especially in those first 15 minutes, establishing the character and his role and then these two different families that he's caught between his surrogate family uh the the russian mafia club owners and and his his blood relatives the police um the way in which gray is framing the relationships between them not only using the dialogue but also the camera um is really kind of clear and 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 uh easily read um, he he uses colors in really dynamic ways to create these patterns, suggesting a relationship between the cops and the criminals. Both of them throughout the sequence are are shaded in blue, um, and then other colors are used to to sort of contextualize his other relationships. When we see him with his surrogate family, they're shown as equals in the frame. There there's a closeness. Um, and, and a familiarity, uh, he's, he's invited into a home and served food. And then when he's met with his, his, his real family, his blood relatives, 
his father and his brother, they're all separated in their own individual shots. Uh, He's surrounded as if uh, they're interrogating him, and it's clearly a much more hostile relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, I love what you when you talk about the uh, the the just the bold sort of like red and like warmth of that opening shot, which comes yeah. uh, the, the actual opening of this movie is a montage of still grayscale photographs yeah. of the period, which include the sort of uh, I believe it's like a drug task force that actually used the slogan "We Own the Night" yeah. is where the uh, is where the title comes from. So that's sort of like the title card for the movie. It's just this montage of uh, historical photographs that set the scene, but then there's a smash cut from those black and white photos to this image of Phoenix standing, and he's wearing that like bright red shirt, and then you have and you have the extremely sensual image of the sound of Blondie's Heart of Glass is playing in the background, and uh, Ava, and then Ava Mendez, his girlfriend, is there waiting for him on a couch, uh, and that, but it starts with that transition from that black and white to that warmth and color, and that color just gets drained out of the movie right yeah. like because the bite you talk about like the, the cops being shown like the blue and the gray and that's how the movie ends um you know uh full spoilers i guess but <laughs> he becomes a, a police officer over the course of the movie and uh sort of loses these other familial relationships that he'd formed and uh so there is like that really poignant image in the end of the movie which has fully transitioned to this blue this dark this gray uh, that really uh, gives you that visual idea of family as trap, as a kind of prison, which is something, again, we talk about over and over on Succession as well. Uh, him being sort of absorbed back into this fold. There's another sort of like Shakespearean theme there too. I think Gray has talked about it as being sort of analogous to what happens in Henry the Fourth with Phoenix as kind of Prince Hal, the wayward prince who's you know pulled back into his sort of family uh, monarchical duty that he has yeah i you know i wouldn't i don't think i would describe either succession or gray's work as melodrama but there's there's something shakespearean or operatic about the relationships between archetypes that that are played with in both yeah uh and we own the night is also characterized by its great uh car chase scene sure. which apparently was actually the impetus for the movie when a producer asked him to uh write something with a car chase uh in it uh so that's that's that's, so that's a, the funny impetus for the movie but i do think that that we own the night ends up being one of his like sort of best most original movies sort of because of the kind of stylistic stretching that he's doing uh where it feels like you can feel his uh his family experience and his relationships informing it but it's not too tied to the specificity of what he or anybody went through although it is you know brinkman talks about this quite a bit as being his brother movie about his his movie about brothers which is not a relationship that's really foregrounded as much in his other films um my personal favorite of gray's movies is the one he made next with phoenix two lovers um which is kind of an adaptation of uh, uh, Dostoevsky's uh, White Knights, uh, the the, uh, the Visconti film White Knights, which is based on Dostoevsky. Um, but it's you know, it, but it's it's the it's also kind of like Elaine May's movie, The Heartbreak Kid. It's the classic fable about a nice Jewish boy who's caught between you know a blonde shiksa and a nice Jewish girl, and uh, who's he who's he going to choose? It's um, one of the best movies about 
the friend zone as a concept. I think it's just, but it's it's so contemporary in a way that his other movies are not. It has that great line where Gwyneth Paltrow says, "Put your uh, put your number in my phone so we can like text," <laughs> uh, which is a fantastically 2008 line of dialogue. Uh, Two Lovers is also notable for being the movie that Joaquin Phoenix was ostensibly there to promote during his infamous appearance on David Letterman, where he appeared with a enormous beard and glasses and appeared to be you know intoxicated or something this was eventually revealed to be a ruse uh, for the sort of mockumentary phoenix was making with casey affleck titled i'm still here which i don't think anybody remembers now um but that's a great sort of bit of the legend of you know again sort of james gray's career being sabotaged at every turn even by his own leading man you know phoenix somebody who under the best of circumstances is pretty hostile to to press attention um so perhaps that was not out of character for him but you know again this is one of his best films and it's uh, it's completely sidelined because of this other media controversy around its star yeah it's 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 also uh one of his more overtly autobiographical films he's he's incorporating aspects of his own life into all of his work i mean the the um his own mother dying of brain cancer is is dealt with in the yards and little odessa his his father's legal issues obviously um in the yards and to a certain extent brought into we own the night this film seems to be the first time he's he's putting himself on screen the way in which joaquin is playing him or a version of him or or a melding of the two of them uh his obsession with dvds um he's a photographer in the movie right um and but and i think it goes back to what i was saying earlier in terms of um the the qualities of james gray that are perhaps less commercial than than some of the other filmmakers that came up at the same time the movie opens with a suicide attempt i mean this is coming at a time where he's probably making active measures to reject genre and and being kind of pigeonholed into the the world of this him being a crime guy um and i thought, and, you, said, I thought you said crying guy which is a, which is a funny kind <laughs> no of i don't i don't see yeah. him as that um <laughs> but i also think like he's obviously someone who's got all these personal hang-ups and and uh, aspects of himself existential questions that he he can't help but bring into his movies and this seemed to be a chance for him to instead of placing genre first and and allowing the rest to kind of come through he's he's just trying to he's just digging into his gut and he's really laying it all out there it, yeah. it feels very personal um it, maybe even more so than armageddon time to a certain extent yeah, and we should also acknowledge that this was one of the films he co-wrote with uh, the writer Rick Minello, who uh, I think passed away not long after this uh, film a few years later. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with how you know original the film feels to me. It feels like, I mean, I mentioned you know two very different films as influences right. on this, right? White Knights and 
the heartbreak kid are very different i mean like i think that two lovers is extremely funny in spots because phoenix often can't help but be kind of funny the way that he does things i think there are a lot of scenes in this movie that are intentionally funny like i like the scene where he goes to meet gwyneth paltrow and her rich boyfriend uh played by Ilias kateas at a restaurant he like doesn't know how to drink the, yeah. <laughs> the brandy alexander or whatever that he orders um that's it's and but there's also scenes in this movie like for instance the ending that are just unbelievably bleak yeah. <laughs> and dark um and uh uh yeah it's it, i didn't put a ton in the outline because i don't know ultimately how much relevance it has to what we talk, want to talk about today but yeah it is one of my all-time favorite movies absolutely well i mean i don't have to tell you that james gray is a funny guy he's a charismatic yes. guy when you get him in a room especially on camera um he's he's got a lot of charm and wit um and uh, things that tend to be absent from his movies or at least absent from his characters and and so it's interesting to see uh, there's there's i think a lot more overt humor or at least uh, a kind of cultural jewish humor in in uh armageddon time or if not you know humor i think like humorous sensibility just like a way of being that at least for me um reflecting on my own upbringing uh made me laugh it was it, it was uh whether out of out of sincerity or nervousness i don't know but um yeah the typically you kind of find yourself laughing at the film or at the circumstances more so than anything that's directly or overtly funny um but no joaquin is funny and and I think purposefully funny in that film. And I think you know, and I and I always think of the movies that I think the the four films that they made together are his best work. You know, everything else kind of is on a, is on a lower order than that. And for me, a lot of that is just how like how, how committed Phoenix is and how good he is at finding things that are not in the script, finding things that are not, that are outside maybe of Gray's conception of the character uh, that just bring the movie to life and make them more than like exercises in homage or whatever. A great example of that is the next movie, uh, The Immigrant in 2013, which is, you know, we've been talking around this, but there's also this kind of like sort of side story about his relationship with film critics. You know, the, for a long time, the joke was that Gray was more beloved in, you know, in France than he was in his uh, native United States. And it's not really a joke at all. It was actually quite true. He was, you know, he for a long time, he was embraced by the French uh, sort of critical press uh but uh you know funnily enough not at the Cannes film festival which uh, gray has always complained is more dominated by british critics who never <laughs> liked him and, <laughs> and for a long time you know like american critics were very slow to appreciate him um and it was with the immigrant in 2013 2014 that that kind of turned around because this film got sold to harvey weinstein against uh, Gray's wishes, having of course already had a pretty bad experience with him on the yards, and it premiered at Cannes in 2013. Weinstein bought it after that, and then he held the film for a year, trying to convince Gray to change the ending of the movie. I invite anybody to look up the stories that Gray has told about uh, his editing battles with Harvey Weinstein about this. Uh, you know, he's he said that he, uh, Harvey wanted to do some kind of quote "sound of music" ending for this, with like Marion Cotillard returning to her home country, coming over a hill in old age makeup or something. Can you um, even imagine? It's it's very funny, uh, but. 
Eventually, uh, you know, the film was released intact in Gray's original cut, but it was really given a token theatrical release with no promotion. And so this is where I think the critical uh, sort of tide in the U.S. turned in, in Gray's favor because it really required the intervention of American journalists and critics to tell people, hey, this is a great movie, you should see it. Because, you know, for me, this is, you know, one of the movies that I think about when I think about, you know, should James Gray have more of a popular appeal? This is a very, like, old-fashioned, earnest kind of well, melodrama, frankly. It uh, stars Marion Cotillard as this woman who comes to Ellis Island and is sort of taken advantage of by this hustler, kind of pimp played by Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, there's a bit of a love triangle with uh, the two of them and this magician played by Jeremy Renner. Uh, it's, remember how like they were really working overtime at Jeremy Renner Industries in like 2013, 2014. Man, it was like, everywhere. It was everywhere. They were trying to give him the Bourne movies. Yeah. <laughs> they were trying to give him Mission Impossible. You know, do you remember that he was actually supposed to be the star of The Master for a minute uh, when they were when PTA was originally developing that? It was going to be Renner in the uh, in what became the the Phoenix role. I believe that like you know the the script developed a bit from there, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, supposedly that version of the film fell apart, and I've always uh, interpreted that as you know, Renner just couldn't hang. Ultimately, <laughs> perhaps, yeah. I I think I think that movie took like ten, eleven years to make. It was a long time in development yeah. with all the Scientology issues. Of course, that's a that's a total <laughs> among that, other things. That's a total sidebar. Um, but yeah, so the immigrant also never really you know that's the, this is the kind of movie that you would think would be a candidate for Oscar nominations and right. things like that. I mean, you know, I think it's I think it's the kind of thing too where where he he seems to just always miss that mark. Maybe he's maybe he's ahead of his time, but more likely, I think he's like a year or two too late. If that movie came out, or just five years or, before. or just unlucky and being sabotaged by well, people like too. Weinstein. That too. I mean, it's so I, you know. Because from there, we can speed up a little bit and look at his next two movies. After that, Gray also gets another sort of like. Uh, rescuer, quote unquote, uh, in the form of Brad Pitt, who he's been friendly with for years, but who hires him to adapt a nonfiction book called The Lost City of Zed, uh, which he makes uh, for his Plan B Productions, uh, stars Charlie Hunnam. This is an adventure movie uh, based on the real life story of Percy Fawcett. And uh, I really like The Lost City of Zed. Again, I think this is a lower tier than his films with Phoenix, um, but there's so much great filmmaking in it. Um, it's really, especially has a great supporting performance by Robert Pattinson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was gonna say that's the sort of analog where you may not get the kind of um, surprise or, or or nuance from from the central role, but you get that you get that weirdo flavor. In he's the Robert doing like Pattinson an old school like John Hurt thing in it. Like he's wearing this, he's got this big bushy beard and these tiny little glasses, and yeah. he's he's totally like self-effacing in the role. Like he's very happy to like be like on the margins of the movie. Um, which yeah, that was a, that was I think the role that really uh, cemented my affection for Pattinson. I like him very much, and that's one of my favorites of oh, his, yeah. even though it's not a huge part, but. Again, we have to put kind of scare quotes around the idea of Brad Pitt as a, as a rescuer of his career because the next film they make together is Ad Astra, 
which is in a terrible irony, I think, is probably Gray's most seen film. Um, it wasn't exactly a financial success at the box office, but it was a big sort of like sci-fi film with effects starring Brad Pitt. So much more, many more people, I think, have seen this film and have seen his other movies. And it's a movie that now, although he was diplomatic in promoting it at the time, Gray all but disowns in interviews as basically having been taken away from him and reshaped against his will. You know, there were reshoots done to add things like a love interest played by Liv Tyler, who I think has no spoken lines in the released cut of the movie, um, to add a voiceover track to explain Brad Pitt's thoughts, which is a terrible choice that I think all of us were just extremely mystified by when it came out. I think when it came out, we were all pretty much, you know, those of us who are fans of Grey were talking about it. It was like something happened here. We just weren't sure what it was. And a few years later, basically doing press for Armageddon time, Grey has, has broken his silence, quote unquote, and is uh, now openly says that, you know, he this is not the movie that he wanted to, to put out. <laughs> sure, as much as it, you know, still clearly has his sensibilities, his his ideas his presence is it's all there um yeah the sort of like emotionally direct material which is this sort of like heart of darkness thing where brad yeah. pitt has to go to space to find his dad and yeah. <laughs> deal with his issues with his dad and you know i don't feel like we can fully evaluate the movie not knowing what his original cut looked like but i mean yeah there's there are there are certain images and gestures that i can think like okay i see where this comes from you know like the final confrontation between father and son is something that's just like you know it's a very like simple direct idea that i think in the way the film is ultimately cut and shaped is rendered kind of leaden and too obvious um, I, I, I would hope, I would think that it would land differently in what his original cut looked like. Maybe one day we'll get to see it, but I, I don't have much confidence in that. Sure, yeah. I mean, he, clearly he put a lot of work and thought into it. Um, he's he, he's he speaks frequently about his his um, the influence Kubrick has on his career, especially in this case. Um, you know, I think even though aesthetically he's very different than Kubrick um it's still a James Gray movie you know as as compromised as it as it is uh it's it's the same it's a different side of the same coin um that is Lost City of Zed they're both these these descents into the hearts of darkness um they're both about about these men trying to make up for the sins of their fathers um directly or indirectly um yeah getting lost in the cosmos i mean it's just you know lost city of zed probably has the ending that that you know you would have liked in, yes. in ad astra oh, with maybe him him floating off into space with his father um spoiler as opposed <laughs> to landing happily on earth and and getting back together with his his wife his his, um, his his mute wife yeah uh it's yeah they're both like yeah men will go to the jungle instead of going to therapy men will go to space sure. instead of going to therapy yeah etc etc sure yeah i i i i i think it's a i like the central performance i think there's like a lot of humor in, there's a lot of like the, weird in touches in it like the like space baboon attack like yeah this, well this, 
the set pieces are so bizarre in that movie like because so much of it is so again like so emotionally direct and i think rendered kind of kind of deadened by the way that the film is shaped uh but the the sort of inflection points the set pieces are so bizarre well i the part of that is in interviews gray talks about how in all of his research which was extensive as he does um there was always this kind of resounding question of is there other life how does that come into play um and 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 so much of this perspective surprisingly being like no or if there is it's not anywhere near our scope of understanding so uh, and so gray approached it with this not central to the film but this this kind of peripheral thought that we are alone Mm-hmm. Humanity is alone floating out here. Um, and so given that, how do we now approach space with still as much wonder as 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 we're he's dealing with themes of of climate change, the dying of the planet, the search for for new places to exist, um, the prolonging of of humanity. Um, and so I think the monkeys are tied to that. like it's not gonna be an alien. It's not gonna be. <laughs> Anything like that, and I think like the moon pirates are tied to yeah, that. Yeah, the, the and, space terrorists. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I think it's all the same as 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 Arby's or whatever it is. Hey, Applebee's. There's, there's a. I think it's a subway. It's a. There's a. There's a subway sandwiches on the moon. Yeah, which I is think just like an, an air. Which is just too, like an airport yeah. strip or something. Which which seems to me just like a straightforward update of the kind of stuff that Kubrick was doing in 2000. Sure, sure. Um, but I. But it. it Gray talks about it as well when when he was talking about um, when he was talking to experts about uh, real world eventualities like the the actual science fiction of this. Um, there seemed to be a consensus about a lot of that kind of stuff being um, aspects of things that require private funding like it's not all going to be nasa space station it's not all going to be oh for um, sure international space stations there's going to be virgins landing pad and <laughs> right, right, and right. you know the having the to pay a hundred amazon for a pillow or something like that right whatever exactly the joke was. yeah with an amazon logo on it or or whatever yeah, I mean the the film. Uh, it also speaks in interesting ways to this desire that I've heard Gray express to you know work in more popular forms. We've we've been talking this whole time about how you know he makes movies that theoretically have broader appeal than they uh, than actually end up happening for the audience size of the audience he gets. You know he's talked about. There was a recent interview I think on his Marin interview. He talked about like he's like I'd do a Batman movie or whatever. Of course he's right. friends with Matt Reeves, so maybe this is not entirely theoretical to him. I'm sure he's had a lot of conversations practically about how that happens. Um, but you know he says he's not opposed to doing things like that he's just he would want to make the movie on his terms and have creative control which will right. never happen which couldn't and, happen yeah. you know and i think his experience on ad astra kind of proved that unfortunately that was his big right that was his bite at the apple to try to make a big studio movie and it went about as badly as those go right um, uh, being mo- all but fired from the movie basically right mostly due to factors outside of his control i mean i think yeah, when the course. movie was greenlit it was greenlit at fox right it wasn't yeah, it yeah. was consumed by the Disney merger. But, anyways, to bring it back to the to the topic at hand, in interviews uh, leading up to Armageddon time, he talks about how he looked at Armageddon time as um, a, a kind of restart for him because he yeah. was so burnt out from those last two productions, and rightfully so, they were his most 
taxing productions. I mean, he had to. He's very go. far outside of his comfort zone for sure, but he's also geographically far from home. He literally did go to the jungle. He did right. go to, to South America to shoot. Yeah, uh, his... to shoot those scenes in Lost City of Zed. He had to go get you know go stand in the swamps and go get yeah. bit by you know bugs you don't even know the names of and yeah. risk all kinds of danger. Yeah, he had to get boxes of pasta flown out uh, <laughs> special just for the crew. But um, I mean, his 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 joke that that he says is that um, he's genetically predisposed to be an accountant in Minsk. And, yes. and yet he's he's putting himself in these situations, at least for these two movies, um, that that are so uh, foreign to, to at least his experiences prior. And so coming off of not only these massive budgets, but also these, these taxing productions... Um, he came out and was like, I need to find, I need to, to go back to, to what I loved about making movies. I need to, you know, be in real places with actors, uh, making movies the way I used to, or making the movies I did when I started the way that I did when I started. Yeah. which is in a large part drawing from his own direct experience. So to talk about Armageddon time, um, as we've mentioned, the, movie is about a boy named Paul Graff but you know like everything in the movie this is closely modeled on the young James Gray pretty much everything is pretty much directly based on his life there's not really any effort at disguising this as an analog this is just what happened to him as he remembers it um, Paul Graff played by Banks Repetta in Queens 1980 he is the uh, you know he's part of a Ukrainian Jewish immigrant family his grandfather Aaron is played by Anthony Hopkins um, his, uh, you know, was born in Liverpool, but is the child of a woman who fled pogroms in, uh, in Ukraine and came to America. And uh, he grows up with his brother in a working class household with his parents, Esther, played by Anne Hathaway, who is a homemaker and school board president, I think. Uh, and uh, Irving, played by our man, Jeremy Strong, uh, who was a plumber. Um, so the basic plot thrust of this movie is that uh, while he is attending public school in Queens, Paul befriends uh, an older black boy named Johnny, played by Jalen Webb, who's been held back a year. Um, they bond over music, their sort of prankish sense of humor, and after Johnny and Paul get into trouble for smoking a joint in the bathroom at school, Paul's parents withdraw him uh, from school with Aaron's financial support, sending him to Forest Manor, uh, a private school, which is, as we've mentioned, sponsored by Fred Trump. Uh, in real life, this was the uh, Q Forest School uh, that Gray attended. Uh, they wouldn't let him use the real name of the school for the movie. Uh, the real-life alumni include Marianne and Donald uh, Trump, plus, weirdly, Hank Azaria. Uh, <laughs> didn't know that uh <laughs> trump being uh, a generation older i think than gray they were not anywhere they were not anywhere near the school uh at the same time um but yeah i mean <clears throat> we've talked a lot about the uh you know the influence of older films and you know classical melodrama and things like that on gray's writing and this is uh armageddon time is really interesting in the sense of it's sort of weirdly not inert or slack but just subdued narrative structure which doesn't have a ton of direct conflict it really is an, a, an attempt to just represent you know this time in this place 
and these people and just present without judgment, you know, the uh, conditions they all lived under and uh, how they tried to live and made some decisions that perhaps, you know, to modernize or evenize at the time uh, don't uh, sort of bear scrutiny as entirely ethical or morally upstanding um, in terms of some of the moral quandaries uh, that come through here. Yeah, um, it's it's not a, a, a movie that could be, you know, easily confined to a genre. It's it, it, it's about coming of age in certain respects, but it's not a coming of age movie. And and he'll he says so directly in interviews. He doesn't want it. He doesn't believe in an idea that there is like a switch or or one singular event that right. forces us or makes us uh, transition. Um, yeah, the movie and, is not about learning lessons to the fact to the extent that lessons are imparted they're sort of misapplied or they're bad lessons yeah or, or mixed messages you know? right yes it's a it's about the process of learning lessons more so than the actual lessons that we learn um it's about how we learn and and how we we uh, change and are affected by by formative experiences um it's um it, there is a kind of central dramatic thrust that that doesn't really become uh, pivotal until the end, until like the 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 final act, um, if you can call it that. But up until that point, it's very episodic, um, and and that's why it draws a lot of these, I think, um, uh, references to to Fellini films, to to Four Hundred Blows. Yeah, um, yeah. These are films that that explore experience through memory, through these episodes, um, more so than in a, a kind of linear progression of of plot to surrounding one central conflict. Yeah, the episodic construction of something like Fellini's Amarcore, I think, is probably like a good analog for what's attempted here. Although Amarcore is much more like overtly satirical, you know, and much more like colorful and funny than, you know, and Armageddon time is funny in spots, but it is rather subdued. And you know, I, 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 watching this, rewatching this movie, I felt I just thought of that scene in Inside Lewin Davis, where you know Oscar Isaac plays his song and pours his heart out to F. Murray Abraham, who just looks at him and says, "I don't see a lot of money here." Sure. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I found the movie way less morose than I probably expected it to be. Um, I, I don't think it's nearly as sad as as two lovers, um, though it's it's I mean uh, obviously um, troubling and and serious and sad um, in in many parts. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of joy, um, and there's a bit the, of that, but it does kind of like leave the movie after a certain point too, right? Cause what you're talking about is, you know, like the opening scenes with the friendship between Paul and Johnny, where they bond over, you know, like they're pranking their teacher and things like that. And some of the liveliness at the dinner table and stuff, but eventually that kind of leaves the movie. Not think. necessarily. I just think it, 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 it plays hand in hand with the, um, the hypocrisy of some of the characters and their situations or, or, um, to me, what felt so truly Jewish was the way in which humor is always used as a counterpoint um, to to struggle or or sadness or trauma. Um, I think there was, 
as far as capturing uh, the perspective of youth, I felt that there was um, a lot of great nuance in the ways in which conversations were happening outside of of the character's perspective. He would walk into scenes that were already happening and be unaware of the things that are being discussed. And his perspective is sheltered by um, his parents and his, his grandparents as much as... Um, he's having this this awakening um, as much as he's seeing things that he probably shouldn't be seeing. There's also even more being hidden from him. Um, and and so you're right in the the ways in which the family interacts, there's there's a lightness or there's a humor or or a charm in that. And at the same time, there's uh, I don't want to call it insidiousness, but there's a duplicity there. There's for for a, a, as fun as it is to see his father siding with him when he's ordering dumplings at the dinner table, we also see the other side, which is his mother's frustration that they won't eat the food or respect her act of, of cooking the food. Yeah, there's a deep, I think the word is ambivalence. That's the word I keep coming back to about this movie because everything is, um, I don't know how much we want to get into the comparisons to another favorite filmmaker of ours, Frederick Wiseman, but he was somebody I thought about quite a bit. Fred Wiseman, a documentary filmmaker who makes movies without sort of like interstitial voiceover or talking heads. Uh, instead, he sort of, you know, he uses his editing and you know the contrast between scenes and transitions uh, to sort of you know gently imply things or point things out about the settings he's documenting and there particularly at the ending of this movie there are scenes that are placed next to each other speeches monologues bits of dialogue that are placed next to each other to act in sort of ironic counterpoint you know people trying to impart lessons to the young Paul that end up kind of contradicting each other or not really holding their own internal logic. I think Gray has particularly harped on this point because I think a lot of critics missed this in trying to apply this as a coming-of-age story. It's very tempting. I think an important place to begin with this movie is to talk about the grandfather character, Aaron, played by Anthony Hopkins, who is, in a lot of senses, you know, he just sort of radiates, you know, decency and wholesomeness. You know, he's he's clearly somebody that uh, Gray looks back on quite fondly. Um, Hopkins has a lot of natural warmth and charm. Um, and, you know, he seems to encourage, you know, the young Paul Graff's uh, uh, aspirations to be an artist. He's shown painting a lot throughout the movie. He, At this point in his life, he wants to be some kind of visual artist. He doesn't know what. Uh, there's a fantasy sequence at the Guggenheim where he fantasizes about painting a Kandinsky painting and something like that. Um, but uh, Aaron serves this very odd role in the movie where he is, on the one hand, this figure of sort of moral rectitude who in one of the centerpiece scenes, um, you know, says to Paul, says to Paul, he says, you got to be a mensch, right? He says when he's, when Paul says that, you know, these, you know, these boys at my school, you know, they use the N word, you know, they talk, they say bad things about the black kids. And I don't say anything because, you know, well, of course I don't. Why would I start a conflict? And Aaron says, you know, you, that's crap. You got to, you got to stand up for, you got to stand up for other people. You got to be a bench. But at the same time, Aaron's the one who sent him to that school. He's also he's saying at the same time, you got to get in with these kids, right? He doesn't say that explicitly, but he says it implicitly. He's like, this is what you got to do for your future. You know, you got to stand up to these kids, but you also kind of got to be one of them. Um, and it's a message that the movie, uh, you know, I think it, I think what it implies is that you know, is Paul tries to take this to heart, but he doesn't really know what to do with it. It's not that, it's and that's why it's ultimately not a coming of age movie or a movie where somebody learns a lesson. Because what are you supposed to take 
from that. That's the ambivalence that's at the heart of the movie. Um, one of the choices I think is really interesting. I love the way he works with the, the young actors in this movie. One of the really interesting choices is how the, you know, the racist little shits at his private school, they're, they don't really seem they're they're pretty nice to to Paul. They don't, right. <laughs> you know, they they do say some pretty horrendous things, you know, when one of the kids says, "Did you have one of them?" and meaning Johnny uh, at your house. Um but you know, they they're they, they're pretty welcoming to Paul when he, the school even despite the uh the the menacing scene with Fred Trump who uh quickly, you know, wants to let Paul know that he's, you know, sniffs out a Jew in his uh, in his hallways. Um you know, the other kids they don't seem to mind him, you know. They they're, they're pretty yeah. nice to him. Well, Gray kind of contextualizes it as the uh, the realization that that one can be oppressed and also simultaneously be an depre- be an oppressor. Yeah. Um. And so I don't know if that's ambivalence, but I think that's the kind of central conceit that that we're watching um, this character figure out. Um, because I central to that contradiction in in um the grandfather's character, he is not only just encouraging him to ingratiate himself with these with these wasps, with these these um the, the elites of tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, these these kids at the private school. Um He's he's encouraging him to assimilate. He's encouraging him yep. to uh, he's now that the, the way it's phrased in the film, he has a good name now. The name has been changed to to be less overtly Jewish. Right. Um and and he can come into this space and act as if he's one of them. Um and at the same time, the grandfather is trying to instill these these centrally Jewish philosophies in him to be a mensch um, and and stand up and do the right thing uh, because of the oppression that they have experienced as Jews. Um, so to me, I think, you know, that's the strength of the movie to suggest that, um, or, I, you know, I think it's courageous on, on, on Gray's part to, to make this film that will obviously by any marketing team be presented as this this coming of age mm-hmm. um with a capital C story and and yet ultimately it's about this kid being too young to possibly reconcile any of this information i mean the are are we spoiling the end is is this podcast for the people who's who've seen the film yeah i think again we're talking about james gray's biography here and we're pretty uh spoiler hostile yeah. so, on the, i mean the most you know anyway. I, I think the most heart-wrenching scene is when he's when he and his friend are are arrested for stealing the computer and because of his position and his privilege and his father's relationship with the police chief he is allowed off scot free. It's not even the police chief. It's, or, just, or it's just, just that he happened to have done a favor for this one officer right. who's there. Yeah, it's the a, one it's, guy that's it's there. It's a much more random stroke of luck than that. Like, it is a form of privilege that manifests itself, but it's also quite, as uh, as the strong character says, as his father says, it's like it's a real lucky break. Yes. Yeah. A- sure, absolutely. But even though, you know... Which highlights the randomness of, you know, who gets off, you know, and sure. who gets crushed, right? But there seems to be a difference in how they're treated from the get-go when... Oh, of when, course, yeah. um, 
and, and it's a great performance. Um, uh, Jalen Webb, uh, who plays Johnny, yeah, it's in the opening scene where you know Paul's acting out behind his teacher's back, and his teacher, without turning around, assumes that it's Johnny who's of acting course. out, right? And and this is the central thread. Um, watching him kind of come to terms with this this hypocrisy, um, and so at the end when you know he walks away and realizes that that though it's really his fault he's way more responsible in this situation um than his friend he's the one that gets off and he gets to walk away and then the final scene where he's back in the private school there is this this Sort of, it's sort of like a Thanksgiving assembly, and Fred Trump is giving a speech, right? Well, yeah, but then he invites uh, Marianne Trump to come up and speak, and she gives. Well, that's earlier in the film. That's... Oh, is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the Marianne Trump speech is, is, is like the when he when he first comes to the school about midway through. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, but then he walks out when Trump is speaking. Yeah, when Fred Trump is speaking at the end, which is again, yeah, right. another another one of those uh, again, sort of like Wiseman esque ironies because you know he's giving this speech about like you guys are the elites of tomorrow, you know, and earlier, you know, his daughter Marianne who's a successful you know lawyer and judge has given this speech about how you know you guys aren't getting a handout you know you're pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps which I feel like is a, is a sort of another sort of like strange ghostly echo of what Aaron says what says when he says uh, in the sort of his sort of ghost at the end of the film is saying to Paul he says like don't let him get you down right like don't let, right. don't let the bastards win you know like isn't this the same sort of just like generically sort of like you know uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps yeah like, kind of rhetoric is can't this be repurposed to suit any kind of ideology and and to 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 bring my long-winded um idea to a point i think that's that's what what he's taking away and and that's what motivates him to walk out and and the final shot of the film watching him literally walk away um i don't know if it's ambivalence so much as it is like his youth still being there or his innocence still still kind of hanging on and and not allowing him to necessarily process how complicated all of this has been um there could be one way of looking at it as you know he realizes it's all bullshit um and it's just kind of running away but also i think to a certain extent he's also like well i don't get it I'm I'm still gonna go be a kid. Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, the ending of the film, which I think, yeah, I think this is this has a lot to do with how certain critics read the film. And there has been a mixed response to the film in certain quarters, especially from people who took this as a rather perhaps another simplistic kind of message movie of the kind that we see all too often, you know, right. in, in American cinema, especially prestige, shall we say, cinema of this kind, where uh, Paul walks out on this assembly where Fred Trump's giving a speech, and those are the closing images of the movie. As you see this montage of like the empty classroom of his empty home etc and he walks out onto the streets uh alone and you know i think whether you see that as kind of like an affirmational or a valedictory image or if you see it as just like a a kid walking alone on the streets of the city at night you know like it's not to be like he walks out because like he has a clear idea that he needs to reject this he walks out because like you know that's what happens you eventually have to leave school (laughs) sure well and he's been he's been ditching school the whole movie (laughs) that's right i think it's yeah so in a way he kind of ends up where he began which is the classical hero's journey you end the hero winds up where he is that where he was at the beginning having changed but has he changed what has he learned you know that's a 
that's a great sort of, I guess, discussion point for the uh, for the movie. And you know, the mixed reception of this movie had a lot to do, I think, with the Johnny character. Um, because uh, uh, I think a lot of critics of the film, I didn't write down a lot of uh, quotes from reviews, um, but uh, you know, a, there were a lot of consistent points made that you know a lot of people felt that the Johnny character was perhaps more thinly sketched, uh, perhaps uh, you know, perhaps too thinly, perhaps stereotypically suggested as you know, like a, a poor, a stock poor black child that we you know again that we often see in these kinds of message movies, um, and uh, you know the response from black critics I think was not monolithic. I you know there was a very scathingly negative review from Odie Henderson, for example, whereas you know there were, I read you know another much more positive one by Cameron Collins for Rolling Stone, um, and Cam Collins he wrote something in that. I say that that I really liked where he talked about how you know like the, I think the the I, I understand some of the critics of this the way this role is written but I think not enough credit is given to the way that Webb uh, acts it because what I really like about the Johnny character what I think the movie really gets is how naive the kid is despite seeming to have so much more experience than Paul right because he does have experience of things that Gray can't understand, that Paul can't understand. He has direct experience of uh, a kind of poverty and of a kind of discrimination uh, that, that, that Paul doesn't have um, and that white audiences in general can't, uh, can't quite access or can't understand. Um, but although he has that experience and although he is literally older than Paul and Paul kind of looks up to him because he's a little bit taller, because he's got, seems to have a little bit more confidence, seems to have know a little bit more about the world. He's also crazy naive in certain ways, right? You know, I, Collins wrote about this. He says that Johnny acts out because he knows he has nothing to lose. But I mean, like their scheme at the end, which is that they're going to steal a computer from school and sell it so that they can go live with Johnny's stepbrother in Florida who's like in the Air Force and that's going to translate to them be to Johnny getting to live his astronaut dream somehow is a very just like you know typically like childlike idea you know a, fa a, a runaway fantasy right like you can see where it comes from because of the desperation of Johnny's circumstances where he's living with his grandmother who is ill and not in a condition to really provide him with any kind of care and you know the welfare system or the you know the uh, you know uh, child protective services are right around the corner you know there's a pretty harrowing stretch of the movie where johnny's just like hiding in the, the shed behind uh, paul's house uh because he doesn't want to be caught um but i think that uh i think that a huge part of that character is just that he is still a kid right and there's things that he doesn't understand either he think he may think he understands how bad things can get for him but maybe i don't think he does in certain ways and that's why that's why he's so indifferent to letting paul go at the end he says it don't make no difference he says and maybe it doesn't um but there's also i think a real sense in which you know he's not quite not quite as clear-eyed about the world as the film implies he is right i mean i think despite the oppression that both of them have experienced johnny obviously way more so they are still kids and and just because they experience that trauma uh doesn't mean you know there's they're going to have a biological reaction um or, or that they're going to understand it they're right. going to be able to contextualize the things that they experience right um and and then i think going on that um or going off of that it's important to to keep in mind that this is a character who we experience through the other character's point of view. Right. But it's also 
a character written from the memories of someone who experienced them when he was a kid. Yep. Um, you know, he's writing about a real person. He's writing about real memories. I, I, I hesitate to say that everything we see is based on a memory. He's said explicitly that, that his friend did um, hide out in the, the shed that his father had built in the backyard. I would guess that the the computer uh, situation and the arrest is fictionalized. I haven't oh, no, found I any. I think that's real. I, I mean, I haven't found any interview where he talks about that aspect explicitly, but like the computer is like almost, it's like beat for beat from the 400 blows where, where the boys <laughs> steal a typewriter and are yeah, running sure, through the street. Sure. Um, so, I mean, that would be, that would be quite the coincidence. Um, not that it's not appropriate. I mean, I think it's a great um, use of that to, to kind of put a finite point on the story. As far as I had been able to find, they they were friends. He was hiding from uh, Child Protective Services at the time in um, in his shed in the back, and then he kind of lost track of him. Um, but I don't have details beyond that. Um, but either way, he's writing about real experiences, about a real person from his memories when he was 9 and 10 years old. Um, yeah, so I think there's a legitimate argument to be had about whether or not, you know, that I, I, I'm sure that well-intentioned and respectful distance that Gray uh, operates from of writing only what he remembers, you know, with the exception of that one sort of imaginary glimpse he gives into Johnny's life where there is a brief shot of, uh, of, of Johnny at his grandmother's bedside, which, you know, is in the film's logic, maybe, you know, uh, a look into Johnny's interior or maybe Paul's imagination of it is not quite clear. Um, so there, so I think there's a real argument as to whether that kind of respectful distance sort of obviates or negates uh, what can be taken as, you know, the perhaps racism of the choice to have this, the one black character in your film be one whose interiority is just not given as much specificity uh, as the others, right? You know, does that negate the sort of functional role that he plays in the story as being a sort of quote-unquote moral lesson uh, for the other characters? I think the fact that the movie is so ambivalent about the idea of characters learning lessons and learning from their experience, uh, in my view, helps to, to mitigate some of that. But I understand certainly why people were turned off by it. I also think that uh, the way that the sort of looseness or spareness of the way that that character is written is perhaps perfectly characteristic of the way that Gray often writes, which is within these you know classical dramatic archetypes, perhaps viewed from a certain lens or within certain contexts, these look more like stereotypes, but it is the way that he often writes characters is to be a little bit roomier and more generic to give actors the room to fill them out. And I think Webb does some interesting things with the, with the performance. So should we talk about Jeremy Strong? Sure, <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, well, we could talk. We could talk about the the parents. We haven't talked about Anne Hathaway either. Yeah, um, Anne Hathaway plays his, his mother Esther. She, she she has a rough time in this movie because uh, the movie's the movie's not very kind uh, uh, for what it says about uh, about her cooking in particular. Sure, which, yeah, which, right. Which Grace says was really bad. Um, there's that, that that running bit about him uh, trying to order Chinese dumplings uh, for takeout while they're having family dinner. Um, but uh, but Gra but Grace's mother died uh, when he was uh, when he was I think away at, at college. 
college or when or when he was in his early 20s shortly after he left for for school and uh, so he said that he has a few memories of her being sort of like happy and healthy and that has a that gives a real resonance to the way that uh you know hathaway's performance starts out as you know being full of humor and a bit of life and that gets kind of drained out of her over the course of the movie, which is implied to be uh, because of, you know, because of her father, because of Aaron's ailing health and Aaron passes away uh, uh, at some point midway through the film. Um, and, uh, but there's also implications, you know, where she says she's not feeling well, that, you know, sort of, uh, there's sort of a portent of a future illness of a future calamity uh, to befall her. But yeah, she does kind of fade away from the movie in a way that I found very affecting. Um, but her, her husband, Irwin is played by, by Jeremy Strong. And, um, the the joking note I wrote down was, are we sure he's good, Jeremy Strong? Because uh, uh, we, looking at the the film roles he's had to date, you know, we've had this conversation many times about on this on this podcast about Jeremy Strong's his particular gifts as an actor and how people try to use him, right? Because there is this, I I, I worry that the roles he's going to get because he seems to be the biggest sort of like breakout star coming out of Succession. I worry that the roles he's going to get are going to be more of the kind of shall we say trial of the Chicago 7 variety where somebody wants him to do a funny voice and wear a wig and do a lot of prop work and stuff and uh, because they know that he's this intense actor with a lot of process and for some reason in the sort of popular conception of what constitutes good acting we associate that with like bigness and you know these certain sort of like you know again these uh, these gestures and these certain touches uh, that a lot of award nominated performances are sort of notorious for um, whereas what I think of Strong's gifts as being for for being kind of like smallness and for inhabiting a character who may not have a lot to them on the page. I really, one of my favorite film roles of his is in the big short where his character is basically nothing on the page. He's a pretty exposition machine. Basically he's just a guy at one of these financial firms is at hedge funds or whatever. Um, but uh, but he inhabits that guy with so much like specificity and like uh, emphasis on gesture and movement um, that he ended up being like way more memorable than you know the big awful performances by like Steve Carell in that movie, <laughs> right. you know. Um, and so this char- and so this performance is really interesting to me because you have some of that like accent work where he's doing this this very big voice this accent that sounds a lot like james gray and in turn of course is meant to sound a lot like uh what uh what gray's father sounded like you know in that interview you were talking about the uh the dga podcast with reeves when gray talks about uh talking to strong on the set of this movie he goes into that voice implying that strong did this voice the entire time they were on set even when not even when even when they weren't filming um so and again we've uh there was another interview where uh, strong said that uh gray told him don't nail it you know don't try to do something that's like perfect or whatever don't try to like you know do a mimic of this guy you know like get enough in your research that you figure out you know who this character is and where he comes from um but i want it to be your your own thing um and so within that i find that there's there's touches in this performance especially early on in the movie where you know that dinner scene where he's uh you, you all of a sudden he's doing these very specific gestures you know like these hunched shoulders or whatever he's doing the voice and my and I'm, and I'm, and I'm starting to cringe a little bit like i'm not sure if this is is this going to be a very broad wacky performance but then there's a couple of scenes in this movie that i think are just great examples of why he was perfect for this part and what he does 
so well. Um, one of them comes uh, after Aaron passes away. Um, there's a scene where Paul and his brother and Erwin are sitting in the car watching uh, Esther and her family at the graveside. Um, and for some reason, he's reluctant to go and, and be with them. Um, and uh, he talks about how, you know, Aaron gave him a lot of respect that he doesn't often feel as being somebody in a profession like plumbing, you know, and uh, he gets all choked up and he says, well, I guess it's, it's all on me now, you know, to, to support the family. Um, and you sense that great gift, I think, that Strong has for inhabiting, you know, like a recognition of some of your own weakness, of your own feelings of inadequacy. And that and that's another great example of the way that Gray shoots this movie with a real specific focus on the way he remembers things because Strong is only seen kind of from behind at an angle in that scene. It's a great choice to shoot that kind of emotional monologue in a way where you don't see him straight on. You don't see his full facial expressions. Yeah, I mean, I, he's got a great capacity for vulnerability, I think. Um, and... See, I, there's a lot of subtlety in, in the performance. I think it's important to remember, too, he's he's playing a Jew. He's playing, a, you know, a, a, a first-generation New York Jew. So uh, by default, the mannerisms are not going to be subtle. Right, um, right. And, and by all accounts, you know, the— gray his his brother and and i think gray even said his children felt like uh there was a lot of fidelity there in in the voice and in the performance um as well as the mannerisms so you know i found a lot of familiarity there uh especially in the in the 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 greater kind of array of of the family members that would be present for the the dinners and the brunches um my my extended family would have Sunday brunches every every Sunday growing up. It would be my dad and his sister and her family and the grandparents uh, when they were around. Um, and so in in the way that that like I was saying earlier, he builds um, his world through the accumulation of these little details. Um, I think Strong is an actor that fits perfectly into that. Um, he's someone who who relishes in those little details. I mean, you can tell even in Succession, he's uh, the way he modulates the the fluctuation of Kendall's moods has so much to do with his physical appearance and what he's wearing. Yes. Um, and and you can see he's the kind of actor who really feeds off of things like that. Um, I I, th I think he's totally appropriate for for a situation like this where and otherwise the central characters are played by children and, and Gray says explicitly in directing children you've got to be a lot more hands on and you've got to yes. be a lot more exacting. Give um, them line readings and things. Right, like that, yeah. and whereas someone like Strong, like Joaquin Phoenix, he can just let go and and in the best case will be surprised by him um, or he'll bring something. Uh, Unique, yeah. or from his own perspective, I think uh, Strong too, like ha had an upbringing not dissimilar. He he had like a, um, I think an, an uncle or or some some um, figure in his life who who was in a similar vein, very very um, 
a character, a character that, <laughs> that, that he could embody. And so I believe he, he's bringing some of that to this as well. Um, yeah, I mean, his family's from from Boston. I can't, I can't, I can't pretend to have a super specific knowledge of the the strong biography. I mean, I think you know, you talk about him bringing things that kind of surprise uh, Gray and uh, you know, surprise the director. I think of that scene that we talked about where he, uh, you know, where he beats Paul, um, which. Um, <clears throat> You know, I, I I believe Strong talked about how he you know he has, he's supposed to like break down the the bathroom door in that scene, and he like couldn't do it because the door was too sturdy on right. the door they had built, and so he had to like go off like still in character, still like working himself into this anger, like get tools to like dismantle <laughs> the door and, and take it apart, which you can hear him doing in the movie. So he's like really worked up by the time he like gets in there, and of course it's a really harrowing scene, but that also has to do a lot with that great sense I think of of smallness and weakness that that right. Strong is good at playing. You can sense that you know this angering, this anger, this violence is as we talked as you talked about before a desperation. It's a bit of an yeah. act. It's a put on uh, because he doesn't know what else to do. He thinks this is what you're supposed to do uh, in this situation. Right. Um, I, I got it pulled up. He spent his teenage years in Flushing, um, living in his grandfather's basement. So not only did he have a familiarity with the locations, uh, with you know the world of the film, but also as far as I know, he's bringing um, some of that influence of, of his own parental figure yeah. to the character. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I was surprised by how little strong there was in the film. Um, right. Because at least the way that it was marketed or presented, right. um, it seemed to be more of an important presence. Um, the film kind of relishes way more so in the experiences of uh, the kids on their own um which again is a testament to how gray himself frames his own youth in his mind he 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 didn't felt like he he didn't he doesn't have the he doesn't give the impression that he was raised in the classical sense right uh by the presence of anyone and and so i feel like Drong's performance is as reliant on what he's doing when he's on screen as much as as it is when he's absent mm-hmm. um, from the situations. I mean, the the strength of the scene where he he hits his son um, is built on the lead up where he's brought home with his mother and his mother is, you know tells him just wait until your father gets home oh, and yeah. you immediately see the recognition and the reaction knowing what's coming yeah um and which we which we've actually gotten earlier in that in that dinner scene when uh, uh when uh, his his brother set, realizes he's going to get it in the way that he bolts out of the house right is like you know he's he absolutely knows what's coming yeah right like that like the reaction is so swift when he realizes uh, what's going to happen yeah so this is you know th- these things are planted in the audience's mind and you allow and it, it's an interesting thing to have in the back of your mind as uh, you see strong in the earlier scene where he's waking everyone up and he's got the voice saying good morning and you know banging uh, making all the noises. Um, and and there seems to be, you know, at the very least, some joy in the household uh, or some there's some, some humor, some some life to it. Uh, but yeah, all of that climaxes in the in the the scene where he 
sits with Paul in the car after he's just narrow after he's managed to get him out of the police station, you know, get him out of there because again, he knew this cop played by <laughs> great, great cop actor, Dominic Lombardozzi yeah. from the, from the wire and the Irishman. Um, he just, he just pops up in like every great movie, playing a cop for like five seconds. He's good at it. Um, uh, but he gets him out of there because apparently he had done a favor for this guy, fixed his water heater for free at some point. It was a total coincidence. And, uh, you know, and he tries to tell Paul, you know, again, you know, like thinking back to that earlier scene where he says, it's all on me now. He says, what's, and you know, you can see the character thinking, what's the thing I got to tell my son here? And he says, like, look, sometimes people get screwed and I hate it, but you got to make the most of your breaks. Meaning, you know, it's okay if a black kid takes the rap for you, as long as you take this opportunity to go back to your prep school and make yourself white and you get a chance to be one of the elites of tomorrow. And, you know, that's this whole idea we've been talking about running through gray of like, you know, trying to make a better life for your kid, but you make the word, the world kind of shittier in the process. Right. And I think we're watching the kid realize that and not, or at least register that something's wrong. I don't know if he fully understands it, but like he registers that like, it doesn't really make sense to him. Right. He doesn't have, um, the tools to reconcile yeah. these, the hypocrisy there um, or the fault in his father's thinking. Yeah. Um, and perhaps it's because he is a kid so he can only see things in black and white. Um, but also, you know, Strong's character is, is, is probably wrong or is wrong uh, in this situation and in, in thinking this is viable advice and the thing that makes it a great scene the thing that really makes that character and that whole like plot and this this scene really sing to me is that that you can see in strong's performance the element of kind of self-justification the element of his own self-loathing and him trying to argue this to himself at the same time that he's arguing it to his son he knows that it's wrong and it doesn't make sense but he also knows that he has to give his kids something here you know, and trying to improvise that, like that's some of the best acting Strong's ever done, and that's and that's and that's I think that the and that's the core of the whole movie, and it's a great sort of like sick perversion of again the kind of Oscar movie where there is a climactic speech that drives home the theme, right? It's, and it's here, it's like telling your kid like the worst thing, yeah, right, <laughs> which is that like the world's fucked up, eh. right? I mean, we gotta we gotta do our we gotta get our nut, you yeah. know, but you know it's it's fucked up, but eh. Imagine that scene running, you know, within all the other Oscar clips uh, at the award ceremony, uh, attempting to be somewhat inspirational. Um, It's just not. And do, yeah, th- this might be a good time to talk about the the alternate Armageddon time that we almost got because this movie came together with a with a, a pretty different cast. Um, it had to be the cast changed radically because production was delayed by several months due to COVID. Um, but originally, the cast was going to include uh, the Jessica Chastain role was going to be Kate Blanchett, which is a really funny thought. You think about like what if Jessica Chastain did Tar and Kate Blanchett did this movie <laughs> instead? The Jessica Chastain scene in this movie, by the way, where it's like Mary 
Hillary and Trump making a speech again. It's like she's giving a speech where it's like very generic, just like you guys aren't getting a handout or whatever. You guys are, you know, it's the, it's the bootstrap stuff. Uh, but Chastain really makes a meal out of it, man. She really makes it sound so sinister. It's like, all right, right we, we, we get it. You're playing a Trump. It's fine. Like, <laughs> relax. Um, you know, she, I don't know. She, she, she's a, uh, obviously a, cl- a close friend and a charter member of the Jeremy Strong fan club her, herself, uh, the Jeremy Strong Stan Army. She's a commanding general, but, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she kind of she kind of overdoes it in that role. But we were also supposed to get um, Oscar Isaac, I think, was supposed to play Irwin originally. Wow. He was going to be the dad. And I got to say, I can't see that. I can't see that working at all. You know, because Oscar Isaac, obviously a wonderful actor. But, you know, as a leading man, he's way more, I think, conventionally sort of like charismatic than Strong is. And I can't see him playing this ambivalence and this weakness in the same way that, that Strong has such a great gift for. I just can't totally. see him doing it. You know, or at least the, it would just it would mean something very different. It would signify yeah. something extremely different with Isaac. Um, wonder if it would have been a bigger hit with Isaac in it. I don't know. I think this movie would have been doomed either way. Yeah. Uh, we were also supposed to get, I'm not clear in which roles they're supposed to be. We were supposed to get De Niro. And Donald Sutherland. Wow. So I think so. One of them obviously was supposed to play Aaron, hmm. and I think the other one would have been Fred Trump. Probably. But which one? Do you think it was supposed to be De Niro as Fred Trump? That would be very funny because, of course, De Niro plays like Robert Mueller on, uh, right. on Saturday Night Live and things like that. <laughs> and Sutherland, I think, has a lot more of sort of like the warmth that Hopkins has. Sure. Um, but you could also see them kind of flipped. You could you could see, you could see it either way as well because De Niro is somebody you would probably want in a bigger role, whereas Sutherland's you know a little bit little a, a little bit of on a lower tier. Sure. I mean, not that he. Not that he hired a Jew ultimately, but I, it's funny <laughs> to think about both of those guys trying to play that role, um, yeah, the role can, of the grandfather. Yeah, Oscar um, Isaac too, somebody who's not Jewish, but right. keeps keeps getting cast in these like Jewish coded <laughs> roles. Yeah, but I mean, he's like you said, he's not that kind of he's not the kind of actor who feels like he's synonymous with that meekness or that. That same type of vulnerability. The closest uh, thing is has. his character in a, in a most violent year. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Not not a great movie, but it, it also starred Jessica Chastain. Sure. Uh, but there is some of that where it's like he's uh, he's supposed to inhabit this like archetype of like an industrious working class man, or everybody's also like completely cucked in his marriage. By yeah. <laughs> Jessica Chastain is his life is kind of spinning out of control around him. There's, there's sure. a little bit of that there, but again, that's yeah, a very that. that's a very cartoonish, silly movie. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I don't know. We're kind of what did what did we forget to talk about here with this movie? Do we have anything else? Um, how do we how do we bring it back to uh, to succession in the end? What's the uh, what's the uh, I, I mean the other the other piece there was about was the piece about Robert Moses in that scene where uh, Aaron gives that speech to be a mensch to Paul in the park. They're sitting underneath the. Uh, uh, the specter of the structures of the 1964-65 World's Fair, which Moses hmm. presided over towards the the end of his career. So again, the the specter of Moses is there as somebody who uh, you know tried to uh, remake the world in his image and made it much worse in the process. Just like uh, the Roy's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we could so we could leave it there. Um, this has been yeah. This was this was good. I think. Um, we covered a lot of the movie and i mean hopefully some of our listeners will go <laughs> check out some of the some of these films by the the underrated uh, american filmmaker uh james gray who's gotten to do a lot of things that most people don't get the chance to do but yeah but but somehow you know still hasn't gotten his due hopefully we'll uh i i would love to see a future where uh um, you know, maybe theatrical business can recover a bit, and uh, Gray goes on another run of great, you know, classics with uh, with 
uh, with Jeremy Strong like he did with Joaquin Phoenix. Like, and I think that I think I think they're a great duo. I would love for them to continue working together because I think they complement each other very well. And it's also nice that even though we know that Jeremy Strong has his own ambivalence about doing. Um, uh, PR and media and stuff that he threw himself into this, even if it was somebody at Focus Features telling him he had a shot to win an Oscar, which he absolutely <laughs> never did for this performance. Not in a James Gray movie. I'm sorry, man. It's it's not happening. Nope. The curse lives on. Nope. Better luck next time with uh, whatever Sorkin movie he makes next. <laughs> God damn it. Um, Alex, uh, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, My pleasure. This was fun. Hope, hope uh, the hope the the trip wasn't too long for you. Uh, hope you didn't yep, have to travel too far for this. Walk uh, five steps back to my bedroom. <laughs> Surprised the cat hasn't bothered us at all during this. He just, yeah, he's been a good boy. We put him to, we put him to sleep. Uh, anything <laughs> anything you want to plug here? You have any 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 work coming um, up? Any any future podcast appearances to y- to shout out? Yeah, in fact, uh, well. Um, if you if you want to hear me blab about movies some more, um, I'm on two episodes of the aforementioned Gauntlet, uh, uh, run by our upstairs neighbor and close friend Eric Marsh, uh, along with two of our other friends. It's a, a weekly film discussion, uh, topic based podcast. It's good fun. Um, otherwise, next week I'm going to be recording on. The Wiseman Podcast. Mm. We'll be t- I'll be talking with the gents about uh, Central Park, so I'm really excited for that. Rare uh, Wiseman Podcast uh, leak here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, the Wiseman Podcast subreddit is going crazy over this news. <laughs> I don't know when this is going to release, but uh, yeah. Hopefully soon, because uh, this is probably going to be the last episode that you guys hear from us before we're, before we're back in business, recording for a, a full uh, season of succession. Don't worry. We're expecting, expecting Gabby to be back for that, expecting our coast to be back and it'll be uh business as usual for us, if not for, uh, for the Roy's things are, <laughs> as things continue to be disrupted. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, if you're enjoying the Roy cast, uh, the best way to show your appreciation is to drop us a five star, five stars, please rating, uh, and review on Apple iTunes, uh, or Spotify. Um, we appreciate uh, so much the folks who've already done that. There's also a square link, in the bio for those who want to contribute financially, we incur minor ongoing fees related to producing and hosting the podcast. Uh, please give only uh, if, 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 you, if you feel like it. Um, uh, thanks again to Alex Sherman for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. And uh, we hope to be back uh, in your earbuds soon talking uh, about succession. So until then, take care of yourselves, everybody. Bye-bye. Get no supper tonight. A lot of people won't get no justice tonight. And the battle is getting hard in this Irish Armageddon People won't get no justice tonight. Remember.